Dear listeners, this is Interfaith-ish. I'm your host, Jack Gordon, and every other Wednesday right here on Tacoma Radio, we bring you bold conversations about what we believe, why we believe, and how we navigate the common ground and differences between our traditions. This week, I'm joined in the studio by a couple of spectacular, spectacled guests. It's a party of four eyes here. I think we're up to 12 eyes between the three of us. <laughs> I'm joined by Anutama Dasa, Minister of Communications uh, and member of the Governing Body Commission of the International Society for Krishna Consciousness, or ISKCON, a Vaishnava, 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 or monotheistic Hindu tradition. Welcome to you, Anutam. Thank you, Jack. And also joining us is Simi Ram Reimer, the Outreach Director of the Interfaith Council of Metropolitan Washington, where she oversees a number of initiatives, including the annual Unity Walk, the DMV Interfaith Leadership Summit, and the Washington Interfaith Response and Outreach Coalition, YROC. Good morning to you, Simi. Morning. Lots of... Lots of acronyms <laughs> yes. and long names and well, it is Washington D.C. You have to you have to have some acronyms if <laughs> you live right. in Washington D.C. Right. area. Right. Even even the religious communities, maybe especially the religious <laughs> communities, have long and complicated names. So, good morning uh, to both of you. Thanks for for having you join me. Thank you. Thank good you. morning. Good morning. Both, Glad to be here. Both are, are veterans of um, interfaith organizing and uh, activity here here in the area, and and folks I've been chasing after for quite a long time to get you both on the show. So I'm I'm glad to both have you here together. I wanted to just start um, by by uh, learning a little bit more about about each of you. So uh, Anuzma, I think I think the the first time that I I I met you, ran across you. It was pretty early into my own um, activity with the interfaith scene here in the D.C. area. And here was this this tall beanpole of a guy over there, and and uh, quite striking. And uh, being a a a tall white guy wearing wearing a, a stripe of of uh, paint across his forehead, and and having a name that was was given folks pause and trying to trying to figure this out but but a a a very cheerful and uh and and joyful presence there on the scene so always someone that that I've I've felt yeah just a warm a warm spirit coming from you um and and found out that you're you're with this Hare Krishna community what people might know as as a Hare Krishna so I think I wanted to just start right there and just hear about how is it that you um came to your community. What was that journey like for you? My story, Jack, is kind of a, a long one, but just some highlights. I was uh, a product of the 60s and the 70s. I was born in the 1954, so I'm an old guy now, but uh, was very interested in, in, in social reform and, and a lot of uh, concern in the, in the 70s, different movements, you know, civil rights movement, women's movement was beginning to take shape. A lot of concern about what's going on internationally. The Vietnam War was just winding down. And that left me with a lot of questions about, in short, you know, why is the world so messed up and why is there so many problems? And I was studying social science and political science in the university thinking, well, maybe we can change the system and things will get better. And, you know, I had a lot of friends who were Marxists and some friends that were, you know, advocates of different political philosophies and structures. But, uh, again, long story short, I just came to see that those solutions were not as fulfilling. They, 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 didn't, they definitely didn't fulfill the promises that they made. 
and uh, led me to, to start asking things on a more philosophical basis, which led me to more spiritual inquiry. I started hanging out with what were called Jesus freaks in those days and going to Zen Buddhist retreats and going to the Hare Krishna temple once in a while and attending the Methodist church. And all of that just kind of led me to an understanding that there really is something higher purpose in life other than, you know, making money, getting a good job, getting a house, having kids, growing old so that they can grow old and so they can grow old. And, you mm. know, there's something else. Those Jesus and Muhammad and, and Moses and Krishna and Buddha, they all seem to have a, the same underlying message. So that just led me kind of a, I pulled up my roots, traveled around the country for a couple months, ended up in Boulder, Colorado, and thought, let me try uh, life in a Krishna ashram. Hmm. And I did so and made a promise to myself at that time, I'm not going to go back to the things that I'd found unfulfilling. Uh, I may go somewhere else if I find this to be a dead end at some point. And so far it keeps getting deeper and deeper and richer and richer. So I'm, yeah, I'm, st I'm, st I'm still there. Yeah, <laughs> I'm still there. So for folks who don't know, Explain a little bit about um, how ISKCON as an organizational body, or, or maybe more broadly the, the Hare Krishna movement, fits into Hinduism and the, and the broader Hindu community. Okay, great. It's a good question. Actually, the, the Krishna tradition is technically called Vaishnavism or Gaudiya Vaishnavism. Uh, Vaishnavism means it's uh, within kind of the broad family of Hindu faiths, really Traditionally, there's no such thing as Hinduism. There was many, many religious traditions in India going back millennia. And people that were outside India called everybody on the other side of the Indus River became known as Hindus. So the name kind of stuck. So in a sense, it's like you could say, that, you know, within the Abrahamic faiths, they all have some similarities, but still there's a lot of differences, obviously, between Islam and Christianity. So in a similar way. It's a family tree. Yeah, it's a family tree. It's a family mm -hmm. tree. So Vaishnavism teaches, um, we practice bhakti yoga, which is the yoga of devotion. And we teach that actually the, the purpose of life is to understand our own spiritual nature and what's our connection with the divinity. And we practice four basic principles, which are truthfulness, cleanliness, mercy, and self-discipline or austerity. And the purpose of that is the idea that uh, we've kind of forgotten who we are. We're sort of in a collective amnesia as well as an individual amnesia. And the purpose of life or one of the benefits of human life is the opportunity to reawaken our connection with God, our connection with the divinity. Mm -hmm. So whether we're a taxi driver or as myself, I work for the organization full-time or professor or a radio show host or uh, working with an interfaith organization, that uh, we should always try to connect those things with the spiritual practice. Mm -hmm. And uh, that actually can make people happy and peaceful and that the world's kind of crazy and on overdrive with materialism and we need to turn things a little bit. So in pop culture, we, we have sort of an image of Hare Krishna's out on the street corner playing music. And and I think myself included, there's there's sort of a a stereotype that somehow it's it's somewhat um, proselytizing in nature or or something about that it, ha it has that feeling um, and as you're saying it's connected to 60s and 70s and sort of a hippie sort of culture and movement you know the Beatles and and so forth yeah. um, so so are those are those aspects accurate or how does that fit in or how are those sort of external sort of projections of of sort of an essence that you're talking yeah, about? Yeah, those are all those pieces virtues. pieces of the puzzle. Okay. Very, very good, very accurate pieces of the puzzle, but not the full puzzle. The tradition itself goes back thousands of years. Our primary text is the Bhagavad Gita, which is the third most read text, spiritual text in the world behind the Bible and the Koran. And uh, the tradition is actually a very, very scholarly one. 
Uh, but it was unknown in the West until 1965 when my teacher, uh, Swami Bhaktivedanta Prabhupada, came from India at the age of 70 and brought this tradition on the order of his guru, brought the tradition to the West, and it took root in New York in the 1960s, and from there kind of spread around the world and went back to India. And our our major presence in the world these days are our places. I mean, we're all over the all over the world now, all six continents. But very large growth again in India, where it came out of, and we've kind of re-nourished some of that tradition there. But also large presence in Russia and and many other places mm-hmm. around the world. So the chanting on the street is actually part of a, a understanding that in this particular time. The most effective means of cleansing our consciousness or awakening this understanding of who we really are comes through the process of mantra meditation or meditation on spiritual sound, which can be musical, it can be like repetition of, of, of and on beads called, called japa. So the street kirtan is actually still something we do, uh, and it's really kind of a, a, a sharing. It's, it's, I've had some friends describe it as if you're really, really in love with somebody, you mm. want to go out and tell everybody about mm-hmm. it. So that's and the you guys are just in it. love with everybody. <laughs> yeah, trying to be in love with Krishna, you know, uh-huh. this the supreme person. But then when we see that there's a central connection, then all the different barriers that seem so prominent these days, they just fade away a little mm-hmm. bit. It's like, what? Why are we quarreling like, like kids without understanding our connection? Hmm. Our other guest this morning is Simi Ram Reimer, uh, who is no stranger to interfaith. Uh, organizing and and bringing people together in song and otherwise. Um, she's the uh, outreach director of the Interfaith Con- Council of Metropolitan Washington. Um, Simi, how about for you? What, what was, what's your journey been to get to uh, being such a committed interfaith organizer? Um, that's a great question. Um, I kind of took a somewhat of a securitist route. Um, but I would say that I really became interested in kind of interfaith work in graduate school. Um, I was working on my master's in French cultural studies, and I ended up um, writing my master's thesis on, um, it was kind of a media analysis of how um, uh, a few different newspapers at the time were reporting on the rise in anti-Semitism in France. Um, But it was through that work that I was realizing um, that while France does have a large uh, Jewish population, also has a very large Muslim population. And I was also happened to be in France at the time um, in 0405, which was when um, there was an official ban on wearing a headscarf. And so there's a lot of discussion about what that meant for the Muslim community there. And while at one, uh, while I was reading um, a, a lot of these media reports that talked about the animosity between these two communities, the French, uh, the uh, sorry, the Jewish and the Muslim communities, I also wanted to find where my, there might be points of coming together, of you know, some kind of reaching out to each other. And the more I read about that, the more I was kind of intrigued because it's the counter narrative, right? Um, um, it's not the narrative that we hear so often. So I was very kind of um, interested in that and wanting to explore that. Um, and then after my master's program was over, um, I returned home to the States and I was just interested in continuing that work. And I was living in New York at the time. Um, and I um, decided that I wanted to kind of go into journalism and focus on that. Um, and so I, so as I kind of made my way into journalism, I wanted to focus specifically on minority communities mm. um, in the U.S. and in Europe, writing about stories that I felt were not being told. And a lot of those stories had to do with um, people, re- people of faith reaching out to other faith communities. 
And tell us a little bit about your own background and upbringing. You're Jewish. I am, yes. So so what what stripe of Judaism did, did, <laughs> did you come from? That that yeah. means a lot of different things to a lot of different yes. people. Yes. So I grew up reform, um which Where? uh in Chicago. Mm -hmm. Um which you know there's a very vibrant writ large, there's a very vibrant Jewish community um of many different stripes there. Um and you know, I went to I went to Sunday school. I went to Hebrew school. I had a bat mitzvah, but I wouldn't say that I was very active in the in the Jewish community, at least from a religious perspective. But I was always interested in kind of more Jewish history, like twentieth century history, Jewish European history, mm. um, and so that was kind of one of my kind of driving uh, interests all throughout. Um, kind of high school, college, and, and into grad school. Do you think as you became more involved in interfaith organizing that that changed your perspective on how you practice Judaism at home? Yes, absolutely. I would say, you know, um, we talk a lot at IFC about kind of how just because we do interfaith work, it doesn't mean that we're asking people to kind of that we want to all become one faith or, mm. you know, um, and one of our board members said, and, and it's really stuck with me that the longer that she's been part of IFC, the stronger her own faith has become. And I, and I think that's definitely true for me. Um, I have, I'm, I feel like I'm much more active in the Jewish community in DC today than I certainly was growing up or mm -hmm. that I necessarily thought that I would be as I was getting older. Mm -hmm. um, I think part of it has to do with because I have young kids and right. I want them to be involved in that. But but I will say that um, that seeing other people, other people of other faiths, so kind of um, a so committed um, to, to their faith and what their faith means to them, it kind of encouraged me or inspired me really to um, to become more interested in wanting to be more engaged in kind of some rituals and other parts of my faith that I wouldn't necessarily have have thought of before. And I'm, I'm curious how your group has approached um, interfaith activity and engagement if um, if you guys have em have embraced that or if you tend to stick to your own. Yeah actually I really resonate with what Simi said about how in <clears throat> interacting with different religious traditions helps us go deeper in our own particular uh, faith and experience. And that definitely resonates with me and some of the work that I do. I, I particularly, as a communications director, head up a lot of interfaith work that we've been doing in different parts of the world. Here in Washington, D.C., we had a Vaishnava, tr technically our tradition is called Vaishnava tradition within the Hindu family. We've had a Vaishnava Christian dialogue for almost 25 years now. And it's a two-day event, so we have people, we go in and when you treat, we choose a topic, something a little theological, like the name of God or spirit in the world, renunciation, affirmation, uh, uh, different, different types of topics that are relevant. And we, 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 we have people that are uh, somewhat scholarly in their orientation, you know, they're, they're well-read in their own tradition, but they're also people who are practitioners. They're not just academics kind of looking at it from outside the fishbowl, but people who have made a, a serious commitment themselves to a spiritual practice. And so we've been doing that for 25 years. In the last six years, we've had a Vaishnava Muslim dialogue that we organize. And then I started a few years ago a Vaishnava Christian dialogue in India. And this year, we're, we're working towards a Vaishnava Muslim dialogue also in India. And uh, we're launching a Vaishnava Christian dialogue in, in, in Europe as well. So we do a lot of things on on smaller local scale mm -hmm. also, but uh, one of our focuses is try to help people understand that 
as we see it, that we're all actually, our, our, our inspiration towards understanding a spiritual practice or religious faith is all coming from the same place, which is our tradition teaches that we're spiritual beings and we're kind of lost in the material world. So we see other religious practices and text and callings and rituals all as steps from different cultural experiences and certainly based on what's been given by different teachers, mm -hmm. all the steps towards the same goal, which we believe is ultimately to awaken love of God. Mm -hmm. So I would agree with Simi entirely. Our goal is not at all to tell people, okay, kind of coming in some mish-mosh composition. We say kitri. You know, in India there's a food called kitri. It's rice and it's dal and it's all kind of vegetables and it's really good, but it's a big mismash mm -hmm. mash of stuff. Mm -hmm. So that's not our the idea at all. Pot. The melting <laughs> pot, yeah. So you know, stay and go even deeper in your Jewish tradition or your Christian tradition, your Sikh tradition, or your Krishna or Vaishnava tradition. But through interacting with each other, we learn so much from each other. And, you know, I've got many personal experiences of that. I think it really, as Simi said, really almost forced me to go deeper in my own tradition. Mm -hmm. You know, somebody from a, a Christian or a Jew says to me, well, why exactly do you do this? And maybe in my own community, we don't ask that question. So, well, everybody does it. But when you meet somebody from another tradition, so, you know, why exactly are you whatever vegetarian or why do you, you know, chant mantras? It's, it, it, you really have to stop and think, well, yeah, why do we do this? So even that in itself helps us go deeper. And that way we, we enrich each other. And certainly we learn from each other because I think uh, no tradition by any means has a monopoly on the truth. Mm -hmm. And we all tend to emphasize certain things a little more than others. So we can learn from each other in that way. So in your community, like you said, you're um, the, um, the, the teachers that came to the U.S. Um, a couple of generations ago now um, that were the ones that, that, that you know, opened up the, the U.S. popularly to, to uh, branches of Hinduism. Um, they, they brought in you know, mostly converts, right? That was the, that was the goal to, to, to attract hearts from, from who, who were not otherwise exposed to a Hindu tradition. Um, is the community primarily made up of converts at, at, at this point, or is it actually a blend of folks who have grown up in Hindu households? Yeah, it's a great question. And actually, it kind of depends where you go in the world. Like I was recently in Russia. Russia, there's not a lot of Indian origin people, South Asian people, and it's all you know, Russian, what we would say kind of like Caucasian or whatever. I don't know if that's technically the term for, for, for Russian, but definitely not brown or black. It's primarily white people. Um, in the U.S., although, as you said, it was originally mostly uh, converts, uh, you know, black, white, Latino, like that, East Asian. Uh, today, most of our temples are actually, if you go on Sunday, which is our, our, our community congregational worship day, it's primarily people of, of South Asian origin which is interesting because the demographics have shifted and um, it's actually a bit of a challenge for us to see, are we making sure that we're, you know, sociological question, are we making sure that we continue to be relevant to the diversity of populations in various parts of the world? But I think one thing that uh, scholars or, or, or just other Hindu people that know about the tradition appreciate ISKCON's ability to kind of integrate and activate the devotion of people from a variety of backgrounds. So if you, if you do go to our temple, you're going to see Latino people and black people and white people, a lot of Indian people. And I think that's one of the kind of the strengths of our, of our community. Mm -hmm. Is ISKCON or the, the Vaishnava tradition um, integrated into um, 
into the 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 Hindu community here in the U.S., or does it tend to stand apart as a unique? No, very. I would say very integrated. Um, it's interesting. Like in in the in the Hindu communities generally, there's not like a sense like Simi was saying, like you'd come from a reformed tradition, or let's say somebody goes to the first Southern Baptist church on on Jones Street. They don't necessarily on a different holiday. They don't go to like the Catholic church on on Sun on Easter Sunday and go to. But in Hindu tradition, it's a lot more fluid. Mm. So I'll go to events at some of the other Hindu communities, and I walk in there, and I see people that I know come every week to our temple, and I'm kind of thinking, like, what are you doing here? Mm. But it's like, no, I come here on Tuesday night because I like to do this and that. So it's much more of a, of a fluidity there. Mm-hmm. But definitely ISKCON is, is very highly respected uh, by the Hindu communities. In fact, uh, some of the parts of the world where we've had issues with religious freedom, our longstanding connection with India and with the Hindu community has been a tremendous help to us to counteract some of the persecution and, and, and bigotry that, that exists in, in some parts of the world mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and kind of on the rise in a lot of countries, frankly. Yeah. Actually, that's that's a topic that I did, I did want to um, talk about with both of you. Both of you are involved um, uh, uh, with, you know, uh, working towards peace initiatives, whether on a local or an international level. Um, and and Simi, you you've been since you've had your tenure at at IFC, you've been involved with YROC, which is this emergency response um, to uh, to hate crimes and 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 other issues. Can you tell our audiences a little bit about that? What does YROC do? Sure. So um, so YROC actually it came at a very kind of came at an interesting time. I was I had been um, at IFC for about a year, and so this was. Um, I started in uh, end of 2015, and so we started talking about establishing YWAC in 2016. Um, so during the election season, but pre-election, and we started having some meetings um, with groups of people, kind of feeling out. So the idea of YROC is is basically twofold. One is, as you were talking about, to have this response uh, component to it, where when there is a hate crime or a bias crime uh, or an incident of some kind, we would respond as a as a community. And the idea is to have this network of individuals and of congregations um, from all over the DMV to come and to help whoever was targeted, whether it be an individual or a community, et cetera. Um, and so we were kind of discussing just basically what are the outlines of this? And I think our, our one of our last meetings, one of these like kind of in, introductory meetings um, was the week before the election. And then the election happened and we met maybe a week later and we were like, this has got to happen. Mm. Um, and already a week after the election happened, we were getting all sorts of calls. What is IFC going to do to respond? How are they going? You know, I, I feel for my neighbor. I feel for, you know, the community that has their house of worship down the street. Um, what are you do? What are you doing? How can I be of help? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that really gave a, a great deal more urgency um, to YROC. Um, but the other piece of it also is is not just to kind of resp- kind of um, react, but also to be proactive um, and to focus on what are the things that bring us together? How can we figure out how to bring people together to learn about each other, to learn from each other, um, hopefully with, with an eye towards preventing these kinds of incidents right. so from happening. So the relationships are in place That's when right. something happens. That's right. And also to create relationships not to necessarily, pre- well, to prevent incidents from happening, but not only so that then we can respond, but also 
you know, we live in a, such a diverse area. Let's let's figure out how we can um, come, you know, come together over more positive issues, share a meal together, do some kind of service project together, whatever, which is kind of what we get at with our with our day of unity, which is kind of grassroots community building all over the DMV. Um, but that's that's really kind of what how we kind of conceived of the idea of YROC of these kind of these two arms, um, kind of our the our grassroots. Uh, um, kind of grassroots organizing of IFC. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would definitely say that post-2016 or post, post-election, um, that mission has felt a great deal more urgent. Yeah, so what have been some of the, you know, if you're looking at the response side of things, what sure. have been some of the, the incidents that YROC has organized to respond to? Sure. So it's been interesting because also how we've perceived YROC has also changed, as, as I said, or and as also as you have said, that it's kind of conceived of this as this response. Mm-hmm. Um, and we never go in saying this is how you should, this is what the response should be. Um, when there is an incident, uh, we will be in touch with the leader of the community that has been targeted, for instance, and say, how can we help? And I would say 99% of the time when we've reached out, two things that are important. First thing is they've said, oh, we already have a response in place. We would just like for you to come and support us. Wonderful. We're happy to do that. And we have. Um, but the second thing is that I also want to say is we are not the first people who have called. So when by the, you know, when I call, whether it's hours or a day later and say, how can we help? They have, they have already been numerous emails and numerous calls um, to respond, to help. And not only from members of that community, but from members of many different faith communities. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a really important point because people often focus on the issue on the incident itself and don't really know about what the response has been and i think it seems like a good sign that there's a good network of support and advocacy that's 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 already in place that's right and not only i would uh, go beyond that and say not only a formalized kind of uh network or or set of relationships but also this just desire Mm -hmm. to help just to be in solidarity with you know your friend or your neighbor your colleague or you know or the house of worship down the street like these kinds of incidents aren't you know these should not be happening and so when they do we want to you know people as a collective feel like we want to you know we want to support those who are hurting Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. can can you speak about um uh any specific incidents that happened here in the area um that that has been involved with sure sure so one that comes to mind is this is already mm, two years ago i think two summers ago um, but there was a Lutheran church that was desecrated. Somebody broke in um, and just really tore the place up. And so in response, the pastor who was who was who um, had just been hired actually like a week or two before um, put a call out to the community and asked people to make quilts and they, to bring in quilts to help kind of cover over the uh, all of the destruction. And so as soon as we heard about it, we put a call out asked, and asked um, YRAC, members of the YRAC network to come and support. And they had a... Uh, a lovely interfaith service and their re- representatives from the Muslim community and our executive director, uh, Rabbi Jerry Serrata, came and he spoke um, and people of many different faiths came and spoke and we were just there in support and it was standing room only. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like 300, 400 people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there has been a number of, there's been a few incidents of vandalism at synagogues recently, just over the past few months. There hasn't been necessarily that kind of community get together. Um, but there was uh, there was a vigil in Tacoma Park 
that happened not so long ago against anti-Semitism. Part of that was in response to what hap what's been happening in New York. But I think part of that was also in standing in solidarity with the Jewish uh, congregations and communities here in in, uh, in the D.C. area. So those, I think, are just a few. Um, there's also been, you know, incidents at high schools um, and that we've responded to and, and asked, you know, offered our support and our help in whatever way. More in like a one-on-one -on -one in interaction type um, of hate speech sort of thing? No, there's been instances of uh, of hate graffiti. Oh, I see. Yeah, mm -hmm. in schools, a number, in a number of high, at a number of high schools mm -hmm. in the area. Um, and Do you so feel, as somebody who's, who, who has studied anti-Semitism, has studied, mm -hmm. you know, relationship particularly between Muslims and Jews, mm -hmm. I mean, on an international scale in, in France, um, you know, has has lived here as a Jew in, in the United States. Do you feel like um, uh, there's there you directly see a rise in anti-Semitism in, in in sort of your lived experience? Um, yes and no. I, I mean, yes, in the sense that, of course, um, I've seen, you know, a rise in anti-Semitic incidents, um, obviously from the very violent, what happened in Pittsburgh and California, um, to kind of graffiti. I mean, I, I personally have not experienced it to, you know, to my, to my own, uh, house of worship mm -hmm. or against me personally. Um, but I've certainly seen that happen. you know, I've certainly seen a rise against, uh, of of anti-Semitism against Jews in general, mm -hmm. um, which I find very concerning. Um, but I'm also cautious about kind of emphasizing that over other incidents of similar hate crimes against other faith communities. Mm -hmm. I think it's really important that, um, it, at least it's important for me to, to keep in mind that what's happening against Jews and Jewish communities is also happening against Muslims and the Muslim community is also happening against Sikhs and the Sikh community and, and, and so forth and so on. And I think the more we kind of don't, the more we kind of get out of our bubble of what is happening just to us and see kind of general trends, I think the better it is because then we can use the anger or the frustration that we feel about things happening to us. We can also turn that into empathy or hopefully turn that into empathy for towards others and kind of build those relationships. Because as I was saying before about the how people respond and the intensity of the responses, I mean, that to me is key. If that wasn't happening, I would be much more concerned. Mm. But the fact that it is happening, the fact that people are coming together and, and just reaching out and saying, how are you feeling? How are you doing? You know, that, you know, um, you know, how can we be of help? That to me is key. Anutama, I'm curious if in your travels, you're somebody that goes to India quite frequently. Um, I'm curious how how you, particularly as as a foreigner uh, in India, perceive what's happening there uh, right now. Because obviously, there's a lot of concern around a rise in what's called Hindu nationalism, um, and and definitely um, concerns around how marginalized religious minorities like the Muslim community in this present moment are being treated as citizens and so forth that are there and and sort of poking holes in what's generally perceived in this idea of like Indian religious pluralism, right? That that I think a lot of news reports um, are are um, have been, you know, uh, sharing sharing con a lot of concerning news and that and that opens up a lot of histories that here in the US we're not quite familiar with like you know um incidents 
against the Hindu community, or against, excuse me, against the Sikh community and massacres against them historically, um, issues obviously with the Muslim community, and then also, you know, the violence back against, against Hindus as well, just that infighting between religious groups. So I'm curious how you perceive that um, and, and, and what your, your take is on the current moment in India. Yeah, I, <clears throat> I go to India a lot. I also, this last year I was in Russia. I go to Europe, South America, Africa. Have been in Australia for a few years, but um, I think sadly it's. And I'll talk about India specifically in a moment. But I think it's it's a phenomena and it's a frightening phenomena that's happening all over the world, which is this this increased polarization, and and I think it's largely being, not exclusively, but largely being driven by politics, kind of divide and conquer. I I happened to be downtown Washington D.C. yesterday, and there was a, a small anti-Trump march that was walking by, maybe about 30 people, and there was three or four men that were standing inside the group with pro-Trump. <clears throat> and, and the people that were anti-Trump were carrying black signs, all kinds of things about impeachment, this and that. And then this other group was like literally wearing red and the, you know the Make America Great hats, standing inside the larger crowd. And it was the strangest thing in the world because they were both chanting and yelling different slogans and things and one group's yelling and the other group's yelling and they're walking down the street physically next to each other but just yelling at each other and not not just figuratively but literally and for me it was a real image of what's going on in the world today there's so little tendency to like, really sit down and talk and i think that stridency uh and that that that, that, that polarization is being increased by people oftentimes uh, just for you know for pure political gain and i think it's um you know you look what's happening in hungary look what's happening in russia i i would say the united states is largely victimization of the whole thing and i know like getting back to india the thing that really disturbs me i've noticed i've, I've sat on some presentations on capitol hill and heard you know different people speak about the issues and everybody likes to work off their own set of facts. It's it's kind of like trying to get somebody that watched Fox News last night have a conversation with someone who watched MSNBC about some event, and they're they're continuing to kind of yell at each other. So when you speak with people about India, the Hindus, I have many people from different Hindu uh, traditions, and they will they can give you a long and kind of gory history of how they've been persecuted within India and. You know, goes back centuries to the you know the invasions that, of other armies that happened to be Muslim and the persecution of the Hindu people and and the the effects of colonialization. And even today, they bear these kind of scars of the the Christian community and and so that's their list. Then when you talk with Muslim people, and I mentioned we we do some Muslim dialogue in India, have many Muslim friends in this country, they have a very different list of, of different dates and different abuses. And then you talk to the Sikh. Everybody has their own list. And I find very little tendency for people to sit down and say, what have we done to contribute to the conflict? What do, what, what do we need to do to change our perspective, to talk to our people, to broaden the minds of our people? Like the work that Simi's doing with the Interfaith Conference Council is, is really focused on, because I understand one of the benefits is getting people to kind of see outside the box. And you know, a lot of people that are spiritually, religiously inclined you know, they're, they're getting some inspiration, whether it's just being in the community or through their religious text or some of their prayer or the ritual. And then they kind of think this is a really good thing. But the tendency is then to think, well, I've got something good and you don't have it. 
rather than I've got something good, maybe there's something good over there and over there and over there, and what can I learn from that? So you mix all that in with, with, with political motivations, which is to stand in front of everybody and say, we are special, and oftentimes it's we are persecuted, we have to stay together. I mean, even... <clears throat> You know, the current president in the United States kind of talks in that terms of how, you know, we're victimized, even though I'm in the White House and I'm wealthy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Whatever your political opinion is, I'm just commenting that that rhetoric has become so common. And all it does is alienate and agitate and disturb people. And it gets more and more into the sense of, you know, us versus them. And then you go to India or Russia or so many other places or here at home it really becomes a source of major, major conflict. And religion is supposed to bring people together. Mm -hmm. And if we sit peacefully and listen to each other, it has that effect. But if we just sit outside and point the fingers like these groups who were walking on the street in Constitution Avenue yesterday, it's just going to lead to more and more conflict. This is Interfaith-ish on WD 94.3 FM. I'm your host, Jack Gordon, and this morning I'm talking with Anutama Dasa, the Minister of Communications, for International Society for Krishna Consciousness, and Simi Ram Reimer, Outreach Director of the Interfaith Council of Metropolitan Washington. If you followed our show, you know that uh, each week we have two guests where we are uh, ha encouraging a, a conversation, dialogue to get to know each other's traditions, our beliefs. And in the second half of our show, um, we turn the mics over to our guests to ask some questions of their own. It's an opportunity for each of our guests to ask anything that they'd like to follow up on about each other's spiritual journeys or life stories, anything that they were familiar with coming in today that they want to understand better about each other's traditions or anything they realize they may have misunderstood. On our show, we seek to model constructive and respectful dialogue in the spirit of learning, while at the same time not being afraid to roll up our sleeves and get into some interfaith-ish. So with that, I'll turn it over to my guests and see what questions they have this morning. I'll just start with a common just appreciation for Simi and the work that the Interfaith Council does. I moved to Washington, D.C., 1994 from Denver, Colorado. And I'd attended interfaith meetings of one organization. I forget the name, but I remember I went two or three times. And after the third visit, people were kind of commenting in a, in a circle, and they would say something like, well, in our church, and then they would go, oh, oh, I hope I didn't offend anybody by using the word church. I realized that. And I was thinking, oh, my gosh, you know, we've been meeting for like two, three weeks, and if we're still stuck at this level... This is not a place where I want to spend my time. And then when I moved to Washington, D.C. And, and, and started attending some of the IFC events and went to the concerts and things like that, and probably still known around the country, maybe not so much known here in Washington, D.C., but IFC really was one of the pioneer organizations to bring about interfaith dialogue and cooperation and programming uh, for, the, for the diversity of, of religious traditions and spiritual traditions here. It really set a model, I think, for what's going on in other parts of the country. So those of us that aren't that aware, I mean, there's a lot of great things that happen in Washington, D.C., and we should be there. One of the great things is the Interfaith Council and the work that you're doing. Thank you very much. <laughs> and someone, do you have a question in there? <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm glad it's a love fest. <laughs> well, you know, when Simi, when Simi slipped me that $50 bill and I walked in and said, say what you can, we've got a fundraiser coming up, I thought, okay. Let me let me try to do what I can. 
questions for Simi. You mentioned before we started that you're an opera singer, and I wanted you ever get a chance to engage that in your interfaith work because, I mean, music is such a wonderful way and historically engaged way of, of, of sharing religious experience and, and religious faith that... What do you? How do you? How do you merge those together? Do you? And if so, <laughs> if so, when's the next concert? And how do I? How do I get tickets? My whole family, other than myself, are musicians, so I'm very interested to hear about it. Yeah. So I act well. I haven't really merged it in a performing sort of way. I haven't performed that much in interfaith settings. Although I, I, I as I was saying to you before, I did actually perform uh, at. Our, we do a our IFC does an annual Bridge Builders Award event, and so I did uh, do I did perform a few pieces uh, for the, for Bridge Builders. Um, but I will say that um, you know m- music, of course, as you were saying, you know music can play such an important role in bringing people together and creating this sense of community. Um, and I do think about that in terms of the kinds of when I'm thinking about how to do the kinds of programming that I do, for instance, for the Unity Walk. Um, I really wanted to have some kind of musical element every year, um, and especially participatory musical elements. So for um, for the past few years, we've had different children's choirs. We had Adam's Beat Choir from um, one of the I think it's the largest mosque in the in the D.C. area. Um, they have a children's choir, and so they came and performed last year. We had a wonderful um, a cappella group, Jewish a cappella group from UMD, come and perform. We've had the Washington Revels perform for us, um, which is a local. Um, community performance group. They're amazing. Um, And so anyway, so I've really been conscious of trying to create musical opportunities where people can come together kind of as a a part of celebration, as a part of joy, um, and sing together and perform together. So that's definitely been at the top of kind of at the top of my mind as I've been creating some of these, uh, as I've been creating some of these programs. Because my, my son's sure. actually in India right now. He travels around the world and, and, and does a type of music called kirtan, mm, which yeah. is uh, done a bunch of CDs. He's with my wife, actually, my granddaughter. They're on a three, three-week tour of India, and he has a group called Hanuman, and as kindred spirits, his name is Gorvani, and he travels and does kirtan. So that makes me always think about the impact of music. Well, I was very interested when you were talking about how you know, the different parts of the world where you're taking your work. And you, you've mentioned Russia a few times. I'd just be really interested in hearing more about kind of what the reception is when you go, who is particularly interested or attracted to, to learning more about your tradition. And yeah. Yeah, our history in, in Russia is actually quite an interesting one. I, I was there with my wife in, I think, August now, and they had what they call Sadhu Sangha, which is a, which is a, 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 a meeting of, of people, spiritually inclined people, Christ, mostly Christian devotees, and about five or 6,000 people at, near some resort in the Black Sea, and they bring families and, and you know, events going on all day long, kind of like a big spiritual fair. Um, the, our history in Russia is an interesting one. My teacher first went to Moscow in, I think, around 1970, and, of course, religion was under heavy boot of communism at those days. And somehow he was invited by a Russian professor. He was only allowed to meet the professor. He, wasn't, he asked him, can I speak with students? No. Can I meet some other groups? No. You absolutely can't. You stay in your hotel. But he had one younger American uh, student or disciple with him who was running all over town trying to find vegetarian food. He'd stand in line for, for an hour to try to get a couple cups of milk because it was that bad in Moscow in those days. And he happened to run into a young man who was a uh, an Indian 
young man whose father worked at the embassy and a Russian friend. And they saw him running around in his Hare Krishna robes and said, hey, you know, they thought he's some strange thing from the West. Do you have any blue jeans or Beatles records? Here's our chance. They said, no, no, but, uh, but uh, 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 someone who's a spiritual leader who's taught the gurus, because we had a relationship with George Harrison, who, who's taught the Beatles, is in the hotel room a few blocks away. So this two came back, and, and over the course of a couple of days, Swami Prabhupada taught them both about Krishna consciousness, and the one Russian became very serious, and uh, they left him the one copy of Bhagavad Gita that they brought in with them, and from there it kind of took off. And it went underground. They were publishing books, which was illegal in those days. And people were arrested and they were put in jail. And some people were, were tortured, uh, you know, physically. And also they were doing a lot of stuff, experimenting with, with psychotic type of drugs and things with the government was doing. Not uh, the types that George Harrison was no, experimenting. No, no. I'm, I'm not sure the right term, but whatever the, the type of drugs that, you know, to try to control you or something like that. And at this event I was in in August, there was a... A meeting of, of some of these people that were there in those earliest days, and but they were very determined, and and it it grew underground, and they were, you know, people were sneaking in and bringing books through, and uh, the government. At one point in time, I I've, I've heard a transcript that one of the members of of the Russian Duma stood up and said that the among the three most dangerous things in Russia were were Western culture and I think specifically the Beatles and the Hare Krishna movement because they was aware that there was something kind of going on underground. All of that said, in nineteen in the middle I think we're on nineteen ninety six, maybe maybe eighty six, we were actually the first religious community that became officially recognized in Russia since the whole World War Two period went during Perestroika and all of that. And uh, from there, it just kind of grew and took off. And it's very large these days. There's um, still, so, it's kind of a difficult situation because Russia keeps passing these laws against religious freedom. And from what I've observed, they tend to write something that's very broad and could easily be abused. And then they say, no, 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 that's not our intention. We're not certainly not going to do that. But in recent years, several religious communities have literally been shut down and the government has seized their assets and put their leaders in jail. So there's always a sense of concern. Uh, we've got a very active legal department there that's constantly kind of fighting battles on the local level. And even a few years ago, there was an attempt, there was one prosecutor that tried to have the Bhagavad Gita, similar to saying the Bible or the, or the, or the Quran, is a extremist literature. There was actually a court case saying that, you know, this famous Sanskrit yoga text from India is an extremist literature. And it went through court, and, and they lost. And actually, there was a walkout in the Parliament of India to protest against this event that was going on in, in Russia. So it's been a real kind of a mixed history, uh, one of a lot of enthusiasm from people to reach out, especially back from their, their atheistic and communist roots of that, that middle 20th century period. And at the same time, the government's tending to... Um, open up at the same time uh, has some some re even recent history of, of persecution and harassment of religious traditions so it's a bit of a fine line for us
Simi, upcoming uh, events, ways that uh, folks can be in touch with the Yes, IFC. absolutely. What's the next so, big Well, big so one? our next big, um, we, it's actually a week of events. It's called uh, DMV Interfaith Harmony Week. And we have a variety of events, um, including a concert by Mosaic Harmony, a local interfaith choir. Um, we're also doing a conversation around race. Um and you can find more information about that on our website. And the other thing is we're, we're doing um, a new event that we hope to turn into a series called Parenting for Pluralism. And the idea is to create an opportunity for parents who are bringing up their children in one particular faith to learn a little bit more about how children think about religion, how they think about faith, and then also how to prepare them for living in a multicultural and multi-faith world. So teaching their own children how to talk about other faiths and how to think about other faiths. And best URL to find that at? IFCMW.org. That's our website, and it'll have all the information on there. Great. And for ISKCON? Yeah, a couple invitations. We have a, a regular Sunday, a vegetarian free feast and yoga lecture and some kirtan which is this beautiful music we talked about and spring's coming up we have a really fantastic event called the festival of colors or holy many of your listeners are probably maybe heard of it or possibly attended you can look at um holy dc i think that's the website h-o-l-i-d-c h-o-l-i of dc and it's like this springtime fest of color throwing and turning each other purple and yellow and blue with like <laughs> powders and outdoor music and food and it's really a tremendous fun always a great party all right well thank you both so much for joining me this morning really appreciate you coming in thank you so thank much. you very much it's fun to be here dear listeners that's a wrap on this week's interfaith ish i want to again thank my guest anutama dasa the minister of communications of the international society for krishna consciousness iskan and simi ram reimer outreach director of the interfaith council of metropolitan washington um, thank you both again for joining me. As always, I want to give a shout out to my fellow interfaith astronauts, Miranda Hovmeyer and Sue Katz Miller, and our musical maestro, Jeff Philosopher, for providing our show's music. And thank you, dear listeners, for spending your hour with us. You can find our entire back catalog of interfaith ish episodes wherever you find quality podcasts. We're on social media at interfaith ish. You can write us about the interfaith ish you wish to dish at interfaithish at gmail.com. That's I-N-T-E-R-F-A-I-T-H-I-S-H at gmail.com. Leave us a voicemail on our special listener line, 202-599-2953. Interfaithish will be back in two weeks. Until then, keep it locked to WOWD 94.3 FM for great music and programs seven days a week, streaming online at TacomaRadio.org.